0: out like a sore thumb in Los Angeles. Try reading a Christian book in public. As a pastor who likes to read while caffeinating myself in the packed coffee houses of this city, I get the strangest reaction when fellow coffee lovers glance at the books I'm reading. And one day this older gentleman from across the coffee bar said loudly and awkwardly, "Hey, You know what the author, Oscar Wilde, said about temptation, right? The only way to overcome it is to give in. Thoroughly pleased with himself, he laughed, he rolled up his LA Times newspaper, and he walked away. Apparently, he saw the cover of my book, Overcoming Temptation by John Owen. Why would anyone read such a thing? Like, why bother reading a book on temptation? Isn't the topic of temptation just for religious prudes and former addicts? That's probably why the man laughed that day when he saw my book. But it's also reflective of the attitude that many Christians actually have towards the topic of temptation. We know it's a part of the Christian life, but I'm not actually convinced that we understand exactly how much it is and why it's allowed We go wrong when our view of temptation is too narrow and when our understanding of its role in our lives is too shallow. If our view of temptation is too narrow, then we may be giving in in ways that we aren't even aware But if your understanding of temptation and why it's allowed into our lives is too shallow, it will leave you paranoid, it will leave you discouraged, not knowing God's purposes and why he's allowing it into your lives. So the goal of these studies is not only to correct those two errors, but to show what happens when we do. We can't afford to get it wrong. And we also can't afford to miss out on what happens when we actually get it right. In the 17th century, the pastor and theologian, John Owen, he he said something fascinating about temptation. He said, quote, "'Temptation is like a knife "'that may either cut the meat or the throat of a man. "'It may be his food or his poison. "'It may be his exercise or his destruction.'" I think many of us know what he's talking about when he says that temptation may be your destruction. But what in the world does he mean when he says that temptation could also be your exercise? That is what I am interested in. If we listen to what scripture has to say, on these issues, not only will we avoid a lot of pain and a lot of pitfalls, but we will grow in tremendous ways, understanding where our true identity lies and learning to live out of it with strength and with hope. See, most of us think, when we think of temptation, we think of the David and Bathsheba moment. We think, okay, that is a moment of temptation, and I've got to do whatever I can do to prepare for that moment. But if you actually study the life of King David and other characters in the Bible, in similar moments of temptation, you will find that those David and Bathsheba moments were preceded by thousands of other moments. There were small choices that led to the big choices that King David made on that day. When that moment comes, it reveals our deepest priorities. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. Why? Because testing proves the depths of a person's commitments. Life is a gift, and with any gift, there's a temptation to use it wrongly. Every small decision you and I make on a day-to-day basis, shapes the type of person that you become. And with that comes temptation to make the wrong choices. But those moments can also be opportunities to make the right ones. So think about it like this. Each time you choose truth in the face of a lie, you flex a muscle that strengthens your character and launches you deeper into the life of the spirit. Moments of testing provide opportunities to prove what means most to your heart, to show the world what matters most to your soul. But it's called testing because it's hard. There are alternatives to the truth, lies which lure us away from our true identity and calling in Jesus Christ. And they might be incredibly appealing. Otherwise, why else would we believe those lies so easily? I think that's why Oscar Wilde also said, I can resist anything except temptation. But however appealing the lie may be, it's still a lie, and it will never deliver. So we must learn to choose truth in moments of testing and in moments of temptation. This was the education that the nation of Israel was meant to receive all those years that they traveled in the wilderness following Moses. They were to learn to trust God in the wilderness so that they might learn how to live in blessing. But if you read the history, you know that Israel failed and you know that Moses failed. But where they failed the test, Jesus is about to pass his. So in Matthew chapter four, in verses one through four, we're given the scene of the temptation of Jesus. And it says, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness, and he is tempted by the devil. And each temptation is designed to turn Jesus away from his true identity, to turn him away from his mission. And the same is true for us. So though these temptations are unique to Jesus as he is fully God and fully man, they are nonetheless real. And from them, we actually learn much about Satan's strategy and how we can overcome it. And in the first scene, we hear an offer of what sounds like freedom but it is in fact a lie. So notice, first of all, that Jesus acknowledges the existence of Satan as a real being. But here he's not described so much in physical form, but as acting in words and in thoughts. And that's how we experience his assaults today. So the focus here is not so much on the enemy himself, but on what he is trying to accomplish and how he is trying to accomplish it. So I want you to notice three ways in which he does. First of all, Satan will exploit your weakness. Satan will exploit your weakness. Our attention in this narrative is drawn to the condition and location of Jesus. What's the condition? Jesus is hungry. And Satan comes along and says, Jesus, I mean, how long have you gone without food? I mean, you must be hungry. Notice what Jesus doesn't do. Jesus doesn't pretend that he's not hungry. He doesn't say, no, I'm I'm not really hungry. It's been 40 days. I don't really feel like eating. He doesn't say that. He doesn't pretend that he is not in a moment of weakness. And Yet here we see Satan capitalizing that and also notice Jesus' location. He's in the wilderness and he is alone. And I think the lesson for us is clear. You and I must be aware of our own area's of weakness. We can't pretend that they don't exist. And sadly, this is what I see happening in the church all the time. Everybody wants to give off the, the idea that we have it all together, to, to create a perception that we never have weaknesses, that we're never in need of anything, and that we've got it all together. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't pretend that he's hungry, he doesn't pretend that he doesn't want bread. But we notice there that Satan will exploit our weaknesses. Secondly, Satan will undermine your priorities. He presents a what-if question. I mean, it's really subtle. I don't know what you think when you think about satanic temptation, but in my mind, I think it's going to be dramatic or explosive, like Satan's going to show up in my life and say, "'Curse God!' But here, Satan rolls up and says, hey, I mean, if you're the son of God, why don't you just turn these stones into bread? I mean, that makes so much sense. Like, you're hungry, you can do the miraculous, turn the stones into bread. It sounds perfect. But here's what's happening. The enemy is undermining priorities by elevating lesser things above God. So the temptation here is really to be sub-Christian. If the enemy can undermine God's priorities in your life, then you won't be looking to God for what you need. You'll become self-sufficient. You'll think that you've got it. You'll think that you really do have it all under control. Satan will undermine your priorities. And thirdly, Satan will appeal to entitlement. He'll whisper things like, why wouldn't you? I mean, isn't this beneath you to suffer like that? I mean, you deserve this, right? How often do we hear things like that in our culture? Like, you deserve anything you want. Like, that's what you need. And here, Satan ever so subtly is appealing to entitlement, and he does the same thing in our lives. Satan's great temptation is to get you to act independently of God, which is to act like God. I don't know if you've ever thought about it in that way, but that's what's really happening. For us to act independently of God is to say we are like God. So his trick is to get us thinking that God is optional. Satisfy your own needs. Do it on your own. Rely upon your own resources. Take the gift, but ignore the giver. Now, make no mistake, bread is not bad. God is a wonderful provider. But Jesus refused Satan's proposal that it could be separated from the one who provides it. So notice what Jesus does so wonderfully. He elevates the conversation above the sub-Christian and he appeals to something far, far greater. Jesus appeals to the written word and so should we. And I want you to notice a couple of things about how he does. The written word, first of all, defines us. The written word defines who we are. According to the Bible, God has revealed himself and his purposes to fallen humanity through his word, connecting us to this larger story, this bigger meaning, this greater purpose. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. That is the framework that we are given. That's how we're to understand day to day life. That is the framework in which you and I are to make decisions on a daily basis. Jesus is quoting scripture in a way that demonstrates its authority. He's saying, Satan, this is what defines my life. I'm not defined by what you're trying to lure me away with. I am defined by the written word of God. Scripture governs the life of every believer. Scripture should govern the life of the church. Scriptures are our highest authority. We are to live our lives in accordance with Scripture. Notice that when Jesus is quoting it here in Matthew chapter 4, it's not so much directed at the enemy as it is at himself. We are to understand ourselves in light of what God has revealed. So the written word defines us. But secondly, I think what's demonstrated in the way that Jesus responds to Satan is that the written word directs us. The word defines who we are, how we're to live, and directs us in the path that we should go. For example, Scripture tells us that all of our food, including our bread, and all the good gifts that we have in life, they are to be received with prayer and with thanksgiving. Scripture also tells us that there are appropriate times to abstain, to fast, reminding us where our truest needs actually lie. Now Jesus had a purpose when he went into the wilderness. Jesus had a purpose when he fasted for those 40 days and therefore he would not allow the lies of Satan to deter him from his mission. Choosing truth in the face of temptation is our great weapon. According to the truth, we don't need to separate good gifts from the giver, but rather we actually enjoy all the good gifts in life as we glorify the giver. The word of God directs us. But thirdly, and lastly, the written word nourishes us. The word of God feeds our souls. I love this. Jesus is saying basically this. The satisfaction of physical hunger that bread can give cannot be compared to the satisfaction of spiritual hunger that God can give. When you enjoy a meal, when you're just starving and you feast and you're like, oh, this is amazing. This is so good. This is just what I needed. Jesus is telling us that in as much as we can enjoy that and thank God for that, even beyond that, is the way in which the spiritual truth of God's word nourishes our hearts and our souls and shapes our minds and our thoughts and our affections and our ambitions. It's life-giving and it is life-sustaining. That is what Jesus is saying. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes pouring out of the mouth of God. So ask yourself a question. What would you consider as life-giving for you right now? What would you consider as life-nourishing for you right now? See, so often we live our lives feeding on perhaps the opinions of other people. Like maybe you got a compliment today and you're like, oh my gosh, that's what I needed. That might give you a little pick-me-up. Maybe it's a job well done at work and your employer rewards you for that. And you're like, Oh, that was so nourishing. Jesus is telling us that those things pale, in comparison to the truths found in the word of God. That the nourishment that little affirmations and a job well done pat on the back can supply there can't hold a candle to the truths found in scripture. If we take Jesus at his word, then that means that there is a spiritual famine in our towns. There is a spiritual famine in our cities and in our country. The men and women that you walk by on a day-to-day basis, though you may not perceive it immediately from the outside, there is a famine, there is a deep hunger, a longing to be fed. And people are spending time and money and pursuing all kinds of things in life in order to fill themselves. But Jesus is saying that the only thing that truly nourishes us is the very word of God. So when we give into temptation, what we're really saying is, no, the word of God is not enough for me. I actually need something else to nourish me. I need this other thing that perhaps God has forbidden. That's the thing I really need. But Jesus refused to push this aside. And he refused to push the love of the father aside. And he refused to push his mission aside for us. So what we see here demonstrated at the very beginning of Matthew chapter four is not only the power of the written word, but the proven love of Jesus Christ, who himself is the word of God. And he models for us victory over temptation in two ways, by giving himself in glad surrender and in sacrificial service. That's what's happening in that moment of temptation. He's yielding and surrendering to God and to the word of God he knew the father loved him and he loved the father so what is the glue there that in, in between the father and son in that moment of temptation it is love it's love and this is demonstrated ultimately in sacrificial service jesus is saying father i am going to accomplish the mission that you have sent me on why would he do it because of love Jesus would say, yes, I will lay down my life for these. He would lay down his life for me and for you. And what I think we're being taught here is this. Love for God is the greatest defense against all temptation. It's love for God. It's knowing that we have this intimate relationship with the very creator and sustainer of the universe. That is our greatest defense against all temptation. And that is the very area that Satan himself will try to attack. For in the same way that he tried to split the relationship between father and son, he's going to try to do the same in your life. He's going to try to split the relationship between you and your father. But we can overcome by understanding our utter need for God. And that we must be dependent upon him for all that we need. And the more and more you realize that, you will overcome the temptation to live apart from him. And you will see incredible fruit in your life. Look and be amazed at the nourishing provision that he has given to you in the gift of himself. And you will learn to walk in true freedom.